You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. Praise God. As they're being dismissed, I want to invite evangelist Kendall Weeks to come and just break the bread of life, take his liberty tonight and midweek, and just talk to us about what the Lord has laid on his heart. Amen. So would you give him a hand clap as he comes tonight? Welcome him in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord tonight? Amen. What a, what a privilege it is to be here, and it's good to see everybody in the house of the Lord. And um, amen. I give honor to Pastor in his absence tonight, and I hope that he and his family are getting well-rested and enjoying a bit of time away. Amen. But uh, with the, the next two Wednesday nights, uh, what I just felt directed, the, the, what came to my mind, what was placed upon my heart is, as I wanted to do just a two-part study in the book of Jude. And uh, so if you have a Bible tonight, I invite you to turn there to the book of Jude. And Jude is, is maybe a, a preacher that I could relate to on a bit of a personal level because he only has one book and he only wrote one chapter in the book. And so he, he's not like the great apostle Paul who wrote many books with many chapters. Uh, you know, Paul is the one noted for preaching so long that the boy fell asleep and fell out of the window and died. And somebody said, if you're going to preach that long, you better be able to also go and raise him from the dead. And so I've stayed away from preaching that long. But uh, here, I, maybe with Jude on a personal level, he just got in, said what he needed to say. And so, but I, I want to examine this book here and um, in two parts. And, and so we'll start with just a first portion of this tonight. And if I would give it a title, it would be called to contend, called to contend a study of the book of Jude. And so before we begin, I wonder one more time, could we just pray and, and let's ask God to, to help us tonight. Lord. God, I thank you tonight for allowing us together again in your house. I thank you, Lord, for your church, for your people. And God, I ask you tonight to anoint us here. I pray, Lord, that you would anoint the delivery of your word. I pray, God, that you would anoint our hearts, Lord, that we would let your word be what shapes us and molds us. God, we want your word to have free course in us. I pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen, amen. Amen. God bless you tonight. Amen. If you're there at the book of Jude, and, uh, and really, I would say probably Jude has just two major themes that are, that are covered in this short book. It is, number one, a warning against false teachers. And number two, it's an encouragement to the church to stand firm and to finish strong. And I'll just warn you on the onset tonight that we will probably only get to the first part of that. So uh, if you want to hear a little more encouraging part, you'll have to come back next week. Praise God, Lord willing. But uh, so we'll begin, and I just want to work down through Jude, beginning at verse number one. It says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. And so Jude was written by uh, this man who, that name Jude is actually short for Judas, and he identifies himself as the brother of James. And what he doesn't say, but what we can learn from what he lets us know about himself is that Jude or Judas was actually the half brother of Jesus. And so Jesus had four half brothers 
who they shared the same mom, but of course, Jesus, who his earthly father was Joseph, but he was born of a virgin. He did not have a biological earthly father, but he did have four half brothers. And uh, his half brothers, the, the scripture tells us in John 7, that they did not actually believe in Jesus until after he was resurrected. That his, all of his brothers uh, prior to his resurrection, they didn't believe that he was the Christ. And I could imagine it being difficult to believe that your own brother was the Messiah. You know, people have said before, like, what would it be like if Jesus was your brother growing up? And you would probably hear all the time, well, why can't you be more like Jesus? You know, why, why can't you clean your room like Jesus? Why can't you behave yourself like Je Jesus was perfect? Why can't you be like Jesus? So there may have been uh, an internal struggle or issues there, and, and they did not believe that who he was until after his resurrection. But it was Jesus himself who said in Mark 31 and 35, he said, it doesn't really matter who my brother or who my sister is, but he said, whosoever shall do the will of God he is my brother and sister and mother. And so it didn't really matter what the earthly relationship was. Uh, it really, if you wanted to be in relationship with him, it was about doing his will. And so Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, doesn't even acknowledge his, his earthly relationship, but he identifies himself saying, I'm a servant of Christ. And he addresses this letter not to a specific uh, region or city as other letters were written, but this is just addressed at large to all believers, to all that have been called of God and, and saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And so Jude says here that it was his original desire or intention that he wanted to write uh, just a letter of encouragement. He wanted to write a letter of encouragement of the common salvation. He wanted to just write something uplifting about the salvation common, meaning it was something that, that was everybody who had been saved had been saved by the same message. That there wasn't a different gospel for the rich or for the poor, for the Jew or for the Greek, but that no matter who you were, no matter where you were, no matter what was going on, there was only one salvation that was in common. And so he said, I wanted to write about that, but, but something changed. And, and when Jude was surveying the landscape of the church and when, when he was looking, he saw that there was an urgent issue that he felt compelled. He, he felt impressed to change his writing. And he said, instead, I, I, I needed to write to you and exhort you that you would earnestly contend for the faith. And those two words, earnestly contend, they come from the same Greek word that I won't try to pronounce, but that Greek word is where we get our English word agonize. And so uh, Jude was, was in that word when he said earnestly contend, he was referencing what would be known as, as wrestling or agonizing or, or being willing to fight, the, an earnest desire to stand and to fight. And when we read through the New Testament scriptures addressed to the church, we find this common theme where the, the Bible addresses us to be in a position of fighting or of doing battle or of standing. Uh, Peter refers, tells us to gird the loins of your mind. And when they, back in that day, they wore those long robes that were loose, those robes. And, and when there was a time 
if they needed a fight or if there was some serious work that needed to be done, they would gird the loins, meaning they would tie up that robe and it would resemble uh, pants. And that was what they did when there was uh, a battle or there was work that needed to be done. And so Peter says, gird the loins of your mind or, or get your mind ready to do battle, ready to do labor. And Paul writes in Ephesians 6 of the need for the whole armor of God that we need the helmet of salvation to guard our mind against attacks on the mind, or we need the breastplate of righteousness to guard our heart, and we need the shield of faith to guard against those darts and attacks of the enemy, and we need the sword of the Spirit to be able to go on the offensive. And so it's, it's this battle so often described in the walk of a believer. And so here Jude references that same idea, saying, I, I'm calling you to contend and, and what is it that we are contending for? It's for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Meaning we're not contending for personal preference, opinion, personal interpretation, but, but we contend for the very same message that was once delivered on the day of Pentecost. Amen. That the Bible says it was Peter and the other apostles who stood there when they were asked that question and they gave that message. And that same message is what... Paul wrote about in Galatians 1 when he said it doesn't matter if, if we or an angel or, or, or another man, for even an angel from heaven, come preaching any other gospel. He said, let them be accursed. There's, there's still only one message and it was once delivered and it's the same message that Jude is calling that we would contend for. And so he writes on in verse number 4, this is the reason he has called them to contend. This is the issue that he saw going on. And so this is why he, he wrote so urgently in verse 4, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jude says, Here's what I see going on. Here's why I'm writing. Here's why I'm making this call to contend because I am witnessing, I am watching as, as certain men have crept in. It's like they came in through the side door and, and nobody noticed. Nobody realized who they were. Nobody was aware of what was going on. And he says very strongly, these are ungodly men. And he says the reason why is that they have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness or they have twisted the grace of God and, and they have taken the grace of God and said, well, hey, because of the grace of God, you now have a license to do whatever you want to do. Because of the grace of God, you now have a license to live any way that you want to live. It's a, it's a license to sin. It's a license to live immorally. That's what they had done with the grace of God. They had twisted and they had perverted the grace of God. And so uh, if I could say it this way, you know, preaching that never confronts sin, preaching that never uh, uh, offends the flesh, preaching that never calls you out of anything, preaching that allows you to be comfortable right where you are. Preaching that week after week after week just makes you comfortable and you don't have to do anything and, and you don't have to change anything is preaching that is not delivering the whole counsel of God. Because when I've received the whole counsel of God, it, it convicts me. When, I, when I've received the whole counsel of God, it, it offends my flesh and it causes me to change and it causes me to alter something. And so any kind of preaching that, that just lets sin go untouched and, and doesn't ever call it out, doesn't ever confront it, is not preaching the whole word of God. Yeah. 
And so this is what Jude is writing. He says there are ungodly men who have crept in unawares and they have perverted the grace of God and they have twisted the grace of God, making it something that it is not. Because the whole reason that we need the grace of God is because of the deadliness of sin. If, if sin did not matter, then I would have no need for His grace. But because of the severity of sin, that's why, Lord, I need Your grace. And that's what grace does, is it gives you the power, by the power of the Holy Ghost, to overcome sin. And so, this is what Jude is addressing, is these false teachers. And he goes on to describe them in more detail. In verse number 5, he says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed them that believed not. He said, I'm going to put you in remembrance. I want to bring back something to your memory that you, you already know or you should already know. There was an assumption of that they would have familiarity with the Scriptures. And uh, anybody can relate to this. You know, it's like you read the Bible. Maybe you do an annual Bible reading plan and you read through and then the next year when you come back to that same passage that you've already read, maybe mo many times over, but it's like you read it and you're, and you're like, oh, I forgot that that was in there. Oh, I, I never, that never really jumped out at me that way, you know? It's, and so he said, I, I got to bring this back to your memory. I've got to bring this back to, to your remembrance. And he, he reminds them and he gives them three examples of the judgment of God. He says, men have crept in unawares and they've twisted the grace of God. They made it seem like it's just a license to sin, live any way you want. And so let me bring to your memory, let me give you three examples. And he goes back to the Old Testament. Jude, who is in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, writing to New Testament believers, he says, I want to I give you three examples from the Old Testament. And the first example he gives there we read was he says, remember when Israel came out of Egypt. Remember when they were bound in Egypt and God did miracle after miracle to bring them out. God sent Moses and Aaron. God sent the ten plagues and hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And then God parted the waters of the Red Sea and they walked through on dry land. And then God caused the waters to come crashing down on those Egyptian shoulders so that you would make it out alive. But then what happened? Not long after they made it out of, of Egypt, we find where they grow impatient and Moses is up on Mount Sinai and the people of God don't want to wait for Moses. And so they, they get restless and they give their gold and their jewelry to Aaron. And Aaron makes for them a golden calf. And they begin to worship that golden calf. And God becomes very angry. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the people so that God didn't just wipe them all out. But even after Moses interceded, there was judgment that came through that camp of Israel. And then even after that, we find again where God brings them to that place. They're right about to go into the promised land. And God says, this land is yours. Why don't you just first send 12 men to go in and scout out the land? And the 12 men come back, 10 of them with an evil report. It's only Joshua and Caleb that come back and say, we could take the land. And all the people of Israel, they all believe that evil report, that they lack the faith and trust in God. And they said, well, we're going to believe this evil report. We don't think we can take the land. And so because of that, they say, you know, what, why are we even here? They begin to murmur and complain and they become sorrowful and they say, we're better off. We should have just gone back to Egypt. And so God says, okay, not one from this generation will go into the promised land and an entire generation. In fact, some scholars have tried to estimate and they estimate that it was around 1.2 million Israelites that did not make it into the promised land. And so that was the people of God. In verse number six, he says, and the angels 
which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. And so his second example, he says, remember the angels who are fallen from heaven. He says they've been bound and they are waiting that the same day that there will be judgment for humanity, there is also going to be judgment for the angels. And then he says in verse 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And so Jude says, don't, don't be deceived. Don't, don't be deceived by, by this kind of, of strange teaching. But let me bring back to your memory three examples where God judged his own people and God judged even the angels and God judged an entire city because of the immorality that was so great there. Don't, don't get it twisted that God is still a God of justice. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He has extended His grace. He has extended His mercy, but He has never changed who He is. And there is still a day of justice that is coming. And so don't get it wrong. Don't be deceived by false men. And so he says in verse 8, likewise also, describing again these same false teachers, these filthy dreamers, they defile the flesh, they despise dominion, and they speak evil of dignities. That, uh, and on, on this particular verse, some commentators vary on what exactly he was meaning here, that perhaps he was saying of these men that they, they had dreams and they would say that these dreams are of God, you know, false prophets proclaiming to be hearing from God and giving dreams from God. But he said, no, these are filthy dreams. These are dreams of the flesh. They are not given to these men by the Spirit. And he said two other things about them is they despise dominion. They reject authority. They, they reject submission. They, they despise things that would be over them. And number three, they speak evil of dignities and don't know exactly necessarily what was being referred to by dignitaries. Some have said that it was referring to speaking evil of the government because Paul says in Romans that even the government is ordained of God. And so uh, it could be that that was what they were speaking evil of, or it could be that they were speaking evil of church leaders. Or the third example could be that they were speaking evil of angels. But whatever the case was, what they were speaking, it was not good, it was evil. And so he says in verse number nine, yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring him against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. And this, this verse here in Jude is the only time in the scripture where this is brought up, this idea of Satan uh, disputing over the body of Moses. And so uh, I really don't, won't even dive into that. There's not other scripture to even compare that with. But the point that Jude was making here was that even the archangel Michael, who, you know, God has no rival. He has no equal. If there is an equal to uh, Satan, it would be the archangel Michael, because Satan was an elevated lead angel in heaven and uh, Michael was the same. He was a, an archangel. And so if there was a, an equal to Satan, it would not be God, but it would be Michael. And Jude says that even Michael, the archangel, he did not come against Satan in his own authority or in his own power, but he came against Satan in the name of the Lord. And so we do, not, we do not have any power over Satan. We cannot resist Satan on our own. We cannot rebuke Satan on our own, but it is only uh, by the power of God. It is only the Spirit of God in you that is greater than the power of Satan. 
And so in verse 10, he goes on to say, but these speak evil things of those which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. He said they speak evil things of, of what they are ignorant of. They speak of things that they, they do not have the spirit of God. They are speaking out of carnal nature. They are speaking out of the flesh. And, and he describes them as brute beasts, that, that they, they're just given over to carnal instincts. That it has nothing to do with the spirit of God. And then he gives three uh, errors or ways that they have gone down. He says, number one, they are given to the way of Cain. And these are maybe some common, again, he's going to three Old Testament examples. And so these are things we, we may be familiar with. We know the story of Cain and Abel. In the very beginning, we find them there and uh, in Genesis. And Cain, he offers a sacrifice unto God, but it was not the sacrifice that God had asked for. And it wasn't that Cain had not worked hard on it. Cain was a farmer, and farming is not easy. And God had just cursed the land, the ground that he was farming from. And so Cain had put work into that. He said, okay, I've worked. This is what I do. This is, this is what I've got to offer. Here it is. But it was not what God had asked for. And Hebrews 11 and verse 4 says, By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And so it was by faith. And so uh, Cain and his sacrifice, it was not in faith and obedience to God, but he tried to do it his own way. And so it was sort of like empty religion where he says, well, I'll just give God what I want to give him. I'll just go through the motions. I'll just, it's, it's, I'll just go through the motions, but it's not really faith. It's not really obedience in God. That was the way of Cain. And then he says, number two, there was the heir of Balaam. And we may be familiar with that story of Balaam. He was that prophet that the king of Moab, King Balak, he identified this prophet and he said, I, I can see he has something. And so he sent, sent some men. He said, hey, Bring, get Balaam, and I, I want him to curse the people of God. And at first, Balaam says, no, I, I'm not going to curse the people of God. And so King Balak, he says, well, I'll try a different way. He sends some more prestigious men, and, and they go back a little bit better off, and he begins to offer him some money and some prestige and says, well, here's what I can, here's what I can give you if you'll come and, and curse the people of God. And so then, well, Balaam starts to reconsider, and he gets on his donkey, starts riding to King Balak, and, and that's when that moment where the angel stands in his way, and, and Balaam starts beating the donkey. And that donkey begins to speak and says, why are you beating me? I, I have, I've been good to you. I've been fit. Why are you hitting me like this? And, and then Balaam is able to see the angel and he still goes to King Balak. And then he tries to curse the people of God. And every time he tries to curse them, blessings come out of his mouth. And he tries again. He goes up on the hill, tries to curse the people of God and blessings come out of his, out of his mouth. And so he totally fails. And you would think at that point, okay, God told you no. God sent an angel in your way. God spoke through a donkey. God caused blessings to come out of your mouth. You'd think that would be enough signs where you say, okay, this is, I better not do this. But in Numbers 31, Balaam goes back to King Balak again, and he says, hey, I know I wasn't able to curse them, but if you'll, if you'll pay me, I've got a different way that you can, you can come against the people of God. And so Balaam, because he was so overtaken by greed and because of his desire for money and for stuff, he, he was willing to compromise. And so he says these false teachers, they're given over to that 
heir of Balaam. They're given over where what really is motivating them, what they really care about is finance and greed and money, prestige. And then he says, number three, he references the rebellion of Korah. And we find that rebellion of Korah in the book of Numbers where Korah, who is a Levite priest, and all of his followers, they rise up in rebellion against Moses. And what struck me when I, when I read that of this rebellion of Korah is, is I read that today and I was reading how Moses, when, when Korah rises up against Moses, Moses does not rise up in himself against Korah. Moses does not rise up and rebuke Korah or curse him or speak against him. But the Bible says the first thing that Moses does when Korah rised up against him is the Bible says Moses fell on his face because Korah was not rebelling against Moses, but he was rebelling against God because it was not about the man Moses. Moses was just a man that was in the office that God had ordained for his people. And so Moses, similar to how he intercedes on behalf of an entire nation when they begin to worship that golden calf. Here, Korah rises up in rebellion. Moses falls on his face because he knows what that will, what destruction that will bring to Korah and those that followed him. And the story goes on to describe how the ground opened and it swallowed Korah and every one of those that followed him in that rebellion. And so Jude says this, these, these things describe these false teachers. And he goes on to say in verse number 12, that these are spots in your feasts of charity. And when they feast with you, they feed themselves without fear. They are clouds without water. They are carried about of winds. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. I mean, I, Jude, if, if you could say anything about Jude, you can say he does not pull punches. Can I get an amen? I mean, if, if you haven't gotten it by now, if it hasn't been made clear to you, Jude is not a fan of false teachers who have crept in unaware. Jude is not a fan of false doctrine. Jude is not, and he wants to make that very clear. He wants to make it very evident that he says the, that when they come in and they, he's, they have these love feasts and, and they come in and they fellowship, but he said it's a blemish on your fellowship. It's a blemish on, on when you come together. They feed themselves, but they're without fear. He said they're like clouds without water. They look right. They might appear with some kind of promise, but really they're shallow and they're empty and they offer nothing. They're carried about with winds and they're, they're like a tree that's fruit is withered and it offers no fruit. That again, is they have the appearance of something that ought to have a, a, produce something, but, but they're not producing anything. He says in verse 13, raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Raging waves of the sea. They make commotion and they have seem to have a lot going on, but, but really they're, they're, it's just their own shame that is produced. That's all that's really going on. They're like a wandering star. You, uh, a star that is fixed in the sky, you can use it to navigate. You can use it to know what direction you're going in. But a wandering star, it's no good for that. You, you, you can't use it for anything. It's like a, a shooting star. It's bright for a moment and then it's gone and, and the light goes out. It's, you can't use it. And so they're like, they're like that wandering star. And then he says, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Matthew 8 and verse 12, Jesus references those who would be cast out into outer darkness, a place with weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. That hell is not only a place of flame, but it is a place of eternal darkness. And Jude describes here that it is reserved for those. He says in verse 14, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their own mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. And so Jude reminds again of a prophecy of Enoch in which he says the Lord will come back with 10,000 saints. And when he comes back, it will be for judgment upon the ungodly. And it will be for judgment upon all those who have spoken evil against him. And he again, once again, describes these men, says they are murmurers and complainers. They walk after their own lust. They're given over to their own desires. They speak boastfully and they speak eloquently, but it is only for their own gain. It is only for their own advantage. And so I don't know how well Jude would be received in our modern world in our, our postmodern or post-postmodern world, wherever it is that we are, with a rejection of anything absolute and a receiving of anything that is relative. But Jude, he's writing here so adamantly because he's saying this is an imperative, that the doctrine that was first received, the doctrine that was first received is something that is worth contending for. And, you know, over the years, you can look back on church history and as hundreds of years went by from around this time when this was written and you watch as the traditions of man begin to get intertwined within the church and, and you watch how far removed the church ever, uh, how far removed the church became from the faith that was once received. And you can see how far the church got from, from that upper room experience. And, and uh, you know, we, we look back to the turn of the 20th century when there were those people that were gathered in Azusa who, who became so hungry and all they did was they just prayed and they just waited and they tarried until once again there was an upper room experience where they received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then they didn't wait there, but, but there were those who were so hungry that they said, no, there, there's something worth contending for here. And I know everybody else doesn't believe in this. I know this isn't the majority and I know that so many others would, would reject this, but I, I think there's still something else that we're missing. And so they pressed on a little bit more and they said, you know, I don't think we're baptizing right. I, I don't think we're baptizing the way that they used to baptize. And they said, no, you're right. We got to baptize in the name of Jesus. They, they were acknowledging there's something worth contending for. There's something worth standing for and saying, you know, uh, this may not be what everybody else is doing, but, but I believe that there is a cause worth fighting for. And so I, I was reflecting back today even to, to some of my own heritage, and I was thinking about the church that I grew up in. I, I grew up in a church in Bellevue, Nebraska for most of my life, and uh, that the church, I believe it was founded, it was in the mid-70s, 74 or 76, long before I was born. 
And but growing up there, I heard stories often of of what the church used to be like and how it started. It was started by a name, uh, a man named uh, Brother Brought, and uh, he founded that church there in the 70s. And when they used to meet, they met in a, a small, tiny little storefront, and it was right next to a place called Bear Trap Bar. Bear Trap Bar right next door to the church, and they said it wasn't uncommon on a Sunday night that, uh, you know, they might have some, some uh, you know, somebody drunk, somebody a little under the influence come stumbling in thinking they were going into Bear Trap Bar, but they walked into Bethel Christian Ministries. And this was kind of, you know, there wasn't anything glamorous about it. I can promise you that. It was just a small group of people in a state that to this day does not have many apostolic churches. I can only imagine how few even, how less they had back then when this was all going on, but, but it was just a group of people. They didn't have much. They didn't have a lot, and, but they had a conviction and they had a burden that, that we've got something that's worth fighting for. We've, we've got something that's worth standing for. And so, and so even though they didn't have anybody else around, nobody believing like them, and, and they're just meeting in this little place next to a bar, but they stood and, and they had a burden to reach their city. And so by the time that, that my family started attending when I was around probably five years old, by this time they had bought a restaurant there in Bellevue and remodeled that restaurant. And uh, I, I may have even been like a bed and breakfast. I don't remember for sure, but I know it was a restaurant because I remember in the basement, there was a kitchen and they still had the dumb waiter that you could uh, like raise, you know, from the bottom level, you could put the food in it and raise it up to the main level. And so, you know, kids, you try to get in there and see if you can raise them up that dumb waiter. But, uh, but that was, you know, they, they were in that restaurant and we'd, in there and, and while after my family started attending, we went through a remodel where that church got a little bit bigger. And then when I was in middle school, we had purchased the property next door and, and we broke ground on that property. And when it was when I was in high school that we had finished building this beautiful, uh, just large building that they still meet there today. And so now I look at it and just think what a great church it is. But the only reason that church is there is because there were some men and women of God generations before who sacrificed everything, who gave everything they had and who gave when it wasn't easy to give. And I could only imagine the sacrifice and the things that they did to get it where it was today. And I know this church has a great history, uh, I believe coming up on a hundred years. Is that right? What, what year would that be for a hundred years? Does anybody know? In 2022, possibly. So maybe next year could be wrong on that. But a hundred years, and so uh, what, a, what a heritage it is for a church, a hundred years. That's generation after generation that, that was willing to stand unwavering and un, uncompromising and saying, no, I, it doesn't matter what happens, doesn't matter what, what goes on, but, but this is something that is worth contending for. This is something that is worth standing for, something that is worth fighting for. And so this is why Jude writes to the church in such a way that he says, I'm not going to mince words. I'm not going to, I'm not going to beat around the bush, but I want to be very direct. I, I want to make sure that there is such an understanding of, of the severity of this. And he, he writes in these ways, describing the murmuring and complainers walking in their own lusts, describing the, the way of, of Cain, just going through the motions, just empty religion, describing the air of Balaam, loving money, having greed, more concerned with that than commitment to God. And the rebellion of Korah, rebelling against God's ways and God's authority. And he writes all this to describe false teachers. But I wonder how many 
would be able to acknowledge that, that when you've allowed the Word of God to search your heart, and when you've allowed the Word of God to get into the deep places of your soul and of your spirit, and when the Word of God has, has been able to be a discerner of the very thoughts and intents of your heart, that you'd say, you know, some of these very things were, were things that I dealt with. And some of these very things were things that were going on in my heart. And, and I had to pray, Lord, God, I need you to help me. Lord, I need you to remove some of these things from my spirit. God, you've, I, you showed me some things in, in my spirit and in my heart that are not right. And, and maybe it was even some of these very things that, that I read about here in Jude. And so, God, I need your help. I, I need you to change me. Anybody could say that you, you prayed like that before. You said, God, God, I need to have you be able to remove some things from my life, from my spirit, because we're, we're not a room of perfect people today, but we're a room of imperfect people that have been changed by the power of the Holy Ghost. That we're a room of people today that are here because I was one day baptized in Jesus name and I was filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so I've got a testimony of the power and the goodness of God. That that's the only reason that we're here today. And so because I've got a testimony, because I've been changed by the power of God, then I, I do believe that there is a cause worth fighting for and there is a cause worth contending for. There is something worth standing for and we're saying, no, I, I know in whom I have believed and I know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Amen. Amen. So I, I'd invite you to stand with me tonight as I come to a close. And so it is, it is a call to contend, is what Jude admonishes, he exhorts. He said, I, I see it so very necessary. I see it so very real in the world that we are living that there is so much that goes on that would twist and that would manipulate and that would deceive. But we have received something that was once delivered unto the saints. We have received something that anybody would say it has changed my life. And because of the power of God in my life, I do believe it is something worth fighting for. I, I do believe it is something that is worth giving my life for. I believe it's something that is worth giving everything that I have because it is the only hope for every soul and for every heart and for every life. The gospel is still the answer that can save every lost soul. It is still what can deliver every heart and every life, every home and every family. And so what, what our hope for our world and our hope for our community is for a church and for believers who say, Lord, I'm willing to contend. I'm willing to stand. I'm willing to fight, God. I, I know what you have given me, what has been placed in my hands. And so I pray, Lord, God, give me a burden. Lord, give me the strength to stand and to contend and to fight, Lord. God, that what you have done in my life and God, how you have changed me, how you have touched me, Lord, how you have washed me, how you have sanctified me, Lord. God, this same message I know is the hope for our city. I know it is the hope for our community, Lord. And so God, I'm going to stand, Lord. I, I'm going to carry the burden, God, that this area would be reached, that, that lost souls in this city would be saved, God. I, I know that you would help us, Lord. I know that it is your will, Lord. And so I pray, God, for, for your people tonight, Lord. I pray, God, you would give us that strength. I pray you would give us that conviction, Lord, to stand unwavering upon your word, to stand unmoving, Lord, upon the faith that you have delivered unto us. In the name of Jesus. And if you're here tonight 
and you've never experienced the power of the gospel, can I tell you, you're just in a room of, of average ordinary people that all we had was hope in God. And no matter what's going on in your life and no matter where you may find yourself and, and no matter the situation or where you may be, that there is a hope in Jesus Christ. There is a hope of the gospel. And, and it's just like Peter said that when you repent and you get baptized in the name of Jesus, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It is a promise for you. And so if you have any questions today, if you have a desire to be baptized, if you need prayer today, I would encourage you not to leave this place, but you can ask somebody and we want to help you tonight. Amen. So I thank you for being in the house of the Lord tonight and uh, God bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus name.